me to the Gospel of John. We'll share from chapter 11, a familiar account of one of the sign miracles of Jesus. The Gospel of John is written specifically with this in mind, closing out that, he, that Gospel record with the statement, many other signs did Jesus that are not recorded in this book. But these are recorded that you might believe, and that through believing you might have life through his name. So the purpose of the Gospel of John is to be a gospel of faith, a gospel resulting in personal faith and personal commitment to the Lord Jesus Christ. You'll notice that the miracles performed are called signs or sign miracles not just carrying a supernatural quality to them, but designed to designate who Jesus is. And the continuing ministry of signs and wonders that are to continue the preaching of the gospel until Jesus comes. These signs shall follow them that believe. The Lord working with them, confirming his word with signs following. Pastor Quinn read today in our prayer time about the experience of Peter and speaking the word of instruction and faith to this man who for eight years had suffered affliction. But it was not just designed so this man could walk home healthy. But the end result, he pointed to us, of the fact that through this experience many came to believe on Jesus. I think it's a great mistake when we approach miracles just for miracles' sake, as though they are an end in themselves. They are indeed a means to an end. They are to be signs that confirm the Word, that give validity and credentials to the Word of God, and for, for people to come to complete faith in the Word of God, and in fact to Jesus Christ, who is the living Word of God. Saving faith comes to us when we believe in the claims of Christ. When we embrace him and accept him for who he has declared himself to be. And all through the Gospel of John you will hear him say to the woman at the well of Samaria, I that speak unto you am he. And to those debating about bread, I am that living bread that came down from heaven. In fact, I am the bread of life. I am the water of life. I am that living water. I am the true vine. Before Abraham was, I am. And consistently and constantly identifying himself as God in flesh. We are not saved by embracing a Jesus of our own making or a Jesus of our own opinion or philosophy or theology. But I am saved this morning, and you are saved by embracing the claims of Jesus Christ and identifying and believing in him who claimed to be God in flesh. I am saved by acknowledging and believing in him as he declared himself, God, the I Am. This chapter, he declares himself, I am the resurrection 
and the life. And we're approaching Palm Sunday and Easter Sunday. And in reading again the accounts leading up to those events, we must pass through John 11 because this provides the context for the triumphal entry that we celebrate next Sunday. This really was the catalyst for the plans of crucifixion. It was a as a result of the events recorded for us in this chapter that it so galvanized the Sadducees and the religious rulers of the day who felt so threatened by now the multitudes that were drawn to Jesus that they decided we must now destroy this man. We've talked about it, we've planned for it, we've wondered what to do. Now is the time for action and we need to put into motion those things that we have agreed must happen. When you read the context of all of John chapter 11, you see this kind of conference taking place between Caiaphas and Annas and those who were in religious positions of authority of that day. Had it not been for the miracle that took place recorded for us in John 11, the ride from Bethany to Jerusalem might have been a very lonely ride for Jesus. His popularity had waned after feeding the 5,000 and then pointing to himself as the bread of life. They said, this is a hard saying. Who can accept this? He's talking about people eating his flesh and drinking his blood. And after that point, many of them left him and followed him no more. In fact, he had to look at his disciples and say to them, will you also go away? And the response was, Lord, to whom can we go? Because only you have the words of eternal life. So the popularity of Jesus had crested and waned. And had it not been for this miracle that again drew the attention and the people to Christ, the triumphal entry might have been a lot less than it was. But this event crystallized the anger, the fear, the hatred, all the religious people moving them toward the crucifixion, which we know was nothing of their doing alone, but God had foreseen and prophesied it from the very beginning. And we need to keep that in perspective. This was happening right on schedule. And so the events of chapter 11, I believe, are divinely timed. They are strategic in the whole culmination of activity surrounding the Passion Week and the crucifixion and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. There's more at stake here than just two sisters having their brother back home and back healthy again. And there's so much more at stake in our personal needs, whatever that might have been that you brought to the service this morning. There's much more at stake than just your personal problem being solved, but his glory being given, his honor, his praise, being lifted up and exalted. Let's look at chapter 11 of the Gospel of John together, and we'll just take an exposition of the first number of verses together. Let me give you the outline so you can jot it down and perhaps follow along with us easier. We'll talk first about the people involved in this sign, miracle of the Lord. 
And then the purpose of what Jesus did. Thirdly, we'll talk about the person. And that really is the crux of the matter, declaring who he was. The problem that existed in returning back to Judea again, and then finally talking about the point of delay, and finally the power of God. Father, I pray your blessing upon our hearts today as we share truth from your word. We know that in services like this, we have a tendency to allow our minds to be preoccupied, to be thinking about other things, the events of yesterday, the schedule of tomorrow. But Lord, I pray that the hour now that we have before us would be divinely directed, and that indeed and in fact the very purpose of this written word would find lodging in our hearts, that it would be rooted there and will produce that desired fruit that you have for us. Speak to us by your Spirit and give us ears to hear what he says. In Jesus' name, amen. The people involved are identified in the first few verses. Let's look together. Verse 1 of chapter 11. Now a certain man was sick, named Lazarus of Bethany, the town of Mary, and her sister Martha. It was that Mary which anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was sick. Therefore his sisters sent unto him, saying, Lord, Behold, he whom thou lovest is sick. When Jesus heard that, he said, This sickness is not unto death, but for the glory of God, that the Son of God might be glorified thereby. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. When he had heard, therefore, that he was sick, he abode two days still in the same place where he was. And after that, saith he to his disciples, let us go to Judea again. His disciples said unto him, Master, the Jews of late sought to stone thee, and goest thou thither again? Jesus answered, Are there not twelve hours in the day? If any man walk in the day, he stumbleth not, because he seeth the light of this world. But if a man walk in the night, he stumbleth, because there is no light in him. These things he said, and after that he said them, Our friend Lazarus sleepeth, but I go that I might awaken him out of sleep. Then said his disciples, Lord, if he sleep, he shall do well. Howbeit Jesus spake of his death. But they thought that he had spoken of taking a rest in sleep. Then said Jesus to them plainly, Lazarus is dead. And I am glad for your sakes that I was not there, to the intent that you may believe. Nevertheless, let us go unto him. To the intent that you might believe. That's what Jesus is still after in present-day discipleship. And I trust that this morning, as a result of our time spent together, we will leave here with our faith strengthened, encouraged, built up, made stronger in him. The people involved 
are identified clearly for us. We've seen them other places in Scripture. Jesus had shared meals with them, instruction with them, and they had grown to love each other. The prayer requests that came to Jesus by way of these sisters made known to us, verse 3. I think it's worthy of a side note. I was blessed by looking at their approach to the Lord in making their prayer request to Jesus. Look at it with me. Therefore his sisters sent unto him, saying, Lord, behold, he whom thou lovest is sick. So often our approach to the Lord is on the basis of, Lord, I love you. You know how much I love you. You know how deeply I love you. Won't you please, because I love you, respond to me and answer my need, answer my request. And I think it's proper for us in coming to the Lord to express our affection and to express our love to the Lord, to worship Him. I think that's appropriate. But there's something more than praise. I think there's faith involved in the approach of these two sisters to Jesus to say to him, I know he whom thou lovest is sick. And when you come back to the Lord with whatever problem you have today, you can with deep assurance say, Lord, it's me, Lord, the one you love. He whom thou lovest. And then fill in the blank from there. Whatever it is you're bringing to him as prayer petition, you need to come with full assurance and knowledge that he loves you. He whom thou lovest is sick. That's faith. Because so often amidst the storm, we're like the disciples who woke Jesus rudely out of his sleep and said, Lord, don't you care that we perish? And I've felt that way from time to time, questioning whether God loved me because of the situation I found myself in. But all church this morning know one thing. He loves you. He doesn't just love us generally. He loves us specifically. Look at it with me. Verse 5. Now Jesus loved Martha and Mary and Lazarus. I like that because it doesn't just say he loved them. It names them. He loved Mary. He loved Martha. He loved Lazarus. He loves Doris Jane, he loves Norma, he loves Joe, he loves Quinn, he loves us individually. Not just God so loved the world in general that he came to die, but Jesus loves you specifically and uniquely. And it's good for us to be reminded this morning that God loves us unconditionally, that there isn't anything in the world you can do to make God love you more nor is there anything you can do to make him love you less. He just loves you, period. Whether you ever respond back to him or not is up to you, but his love is a fact. It will never change. And it's on that basis of love that he says, Cast your every care on me, for I, what? Care for you. Him whom thou lovest is sick. Come to him the next time with your prayer request, not just with worship, but with faith. Say, Lord, it's me, the one you love so much. Him whom thou lovest is sick. And they loved the Lord, but that was not the basis of their prayer request. It was the Lord's love for them.
that they made as part of their petition before him. He whom thou lovest is sick. Verse 4, when Jesus heard that, he said, This sickness is not unto death, but for the glory of God, that the Son of, Son of God might be glorified thereby. That word, that, is always a purpose word. And so we move from the people to the purpose of what Jesus was doing, that the Son of God might be glorified, identifying who he was, not just to these three people, but to his disciples. He said later in the text we read, I was glad for your sake that I was not there because I want you to believe. I want your faith to be changed. Nevertheless, let us go. The purpose of what God is striving to do in us is that he might be glorified, not just that our brother would be healed and healthy and back home with us. He's interested in our physical needs, but it is not an end in itself, but a means to an end. Let God be glorified. Let him receive honor and glory and praise. Let it point specifically and directly to who Jesus is as the Savior of the world, so that lives are eternally changed. Let's not just satisfy ourselves or be content with the temporary because every person who is sick and is healed, that's only a temporary condition. Eventually, all of us will pass through time and into eternity. And any physical healing will only be temporary. What God is interested in is the permanent. The permanent and sometimes we need to understand that these things come so that the permanent can be established. And if that is the case, then I say, thank you, Lord. Do you understand what I'm saying? Oh, we would want these distressful situations to happen. But if through them our family is eternally saved, his name honored and glorified, then we say, thank you, Lord. To that end, receive all the glory and the honor and the praise because he's worthy. There was a problem. And Jesus said then in verse 7, let's go to Judea. The disciples said, Master, the Jews of late sought to stone thee. And you might have the privilege of looking right across the page into the previous chapter as I do. Verse 30, Jesus, speaking to this crowd of people, said, I and my Father are one. Now, I said to begin with, the most critical point is that we acknowledge who Jesus is according to his own claims. These people were very religious, and they should have embraced him for who he was. But that statement infuriated them. They took that statement to be utter blasphemy. How could this man say to them, I am equal to and I am one with God the Father? Anyone who tells you Jesus never claimed to be God, show them at least that verse of Scripture. The Gospel of John is replete with those statements that he claimed to be God. This is one of them. 
And those Jewish leaders knew exactly what he was saying, and they took up stones to stone him. They knew that the claim Jesus was making was that he was God in flesh, equal with the Father, and their salvation really was resting on their unwillingness to embrace who Jesus claimed himself to be. So the next verse says very plainly, the Jews took up stones again to stone him. Later in the chapter, verse 39, therefore they sought again to take him, but he escaped out of their hand. So the disciples were just reminding Jesus, if we go back there, how it was just the last time we were there. And chances are you're going to be in danger. Verse 9, Jesus answered, Are there not twelve hours in the day? If any man walk in the day, he stumbleth not, because he seeth the light of this world. But if a man walk in the night, he stumbles, because there's no light in him. What was Jesus saying? His response to the disciples' concern about going back to Judea. Are there not 12 hours in the day? And if you walk in the daytime, there's light. If you walk at night, you stumble because you're in darkness. Are there not 12 hours in the day? Jesus was making a significant statement to them and to us. My working day isn't over yet. And until that happens, Satan has absolutely no power to abbreviate my life by one second. I'm going to work out my 12 hours, and when my day is finished, then I'll lay down my life. Until then, they don't have any power. Isn't that what he said later? No man takes my life from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. You see, Jesus would die at the hands of these men, but he died right on time. He died right on schedule. In the middle of the afternoon on the Day of Atonement, when they were slaying those lambs in the courtyard of the temple, as they had done for centuries, foreshadowing his death. He was the lamb slain before the foundation of the world, and it was at that twelfth hour when his day was finished. He cried from the cross the same words the choir sang this morning, It is finished. Hallelujah. And it was not abbreviated by one second. There were 12 hours in Jesus' working day. He didn't belong to the union. Twelve hours, he said. There are 12 hours in a day, and my day is going to be that long, and the devil doesn't have the power to take my life from me. And I believe that's true not just of the Son of God, but all the sons of God. Isn't that encouraging? You get a little glimpse in the picture of Job when there was a conversation between the accuser and God. And God said, Have you considered my servant Job? Righteous man. Fears God. Eschews evil. Sure he does. Satan said, You poor sitting at his feet. And Satan said, You bless poor sitting at his feet and learning of him. There's more to this life than just doing things for the Lord. But uh, there's a difference between Mary and Martha in this text, and I think Martha is the one who sets an example for us, a positive example. We'll skip over the details 
of the fact that Mary comes to where Jesus is. Verse 32, when Mary was come where Jesus was and saw him, fell down at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if thou hadst been here, my brother would not have died. Period. No buts. No, no further expression of faith. But I know whatever you ask the Father, God will give it to you. No more statement of faith. What she had encountered in the disappointment that Jesus didn't come had so affected her spirit and her faith that that was all there was to it, Lord. If you had been here, my brother would not have died. But since you didn't come, it's over. And there was a difference between the two of them. And Martha provides for us something deeper, something fuller. Oh, I pray. And every person, I believe, can come to that point of disappointment and react a little differently. For some, an attitude that comes out saying, Lord, if you had been here, my brother wouldn't have died, period. And I've met those who at that, at that point can become angry and bitter at God and turn away from him. Or there are those like Martha who say the same thing. I'm disappointed about this. I don't understand this. But I know even now. Amen. What a difference in attitude. I know even now, whatever you ask the Father, he'll do it. Let me encourage you in the other direction to follow Martha's example. Jesus isn't finished yet. Amen. Jesus isn't finished yet. Don't become angry and bitter at the Lord because he has a great miracle to perform. And he asked where they laid him. And their attitudes of unbelief grieved the Lord. He wasn't grieving for Lazarus. He was grieving because of what he heard them say. Couldn't this man have done something about this? He was grieving because he had spent so much time with them and taught them so much and they still didn't perceive or grasp or know what it was all about, who he really was. And it grieved his heart because of their unbelief. And we know the end result, the power of God to call Lazarus from a grave four days old. And he came forth bound in grave clothes. And Jesus said, loose him and let him go. God has that kind of power. The Lord has that kind of power over your circumstance, over your condition this morning. If you believe that truly, say amen. He can raise Lazarus from the grave. He can handle my situation. Whatever it is, and you've prayed about it, you took it to him, you ask him, nothing happened. If the Lord had healed Lazarus from his sickness, he would have been one of a thousand. But since the Lord delayed, he was one of three whose names are inscribed. And at this particular point, there was more involved than just Mary and Martha. The Lord was galvanizing the attitudes of the religious leaders. The Lord was gathering the crowd's attention and excitement as an introduction to Palm Sunday. And it all came to materialize because of the events of this chapter.
And don't you know that there's more involved than just your problem? Don't you know there's more involved than just your circumstance? God is working His entire plan. You're part of that. And He's working for His glory. You're part of that. It's not just, God, please meet my need, period. There's more involved in what God is doing than just your particular problem being solved. It's His honor, His glory, His plan, His program is also on the line. You know that? His plan, His program is also on the line. He's able to raise the dead. Can he handle your problem? Father, we give it to you because we know you care. You care for us. You care for us. And I pray that you'll help us to know that at this point in your ministry, at this point in your plan conceived before the foundations of the world, we have been brought to the kingdom for such a time as this. And there's more involved than just two sisters having their brother home with them healthy. There's more involved in that. There are the religious leaders. There's the Sanhedrin. There are the Sadducees and the Pharisees and the scribes and their part. There's the multitude of people who are to cry, Hosanna to the King. Blessed is he that comes in the name of the Lord. There's much more involved than just two sisters having their brother home healthy. And for us this morning in this service, there's much more involved than just our particular personal problem that we've prayed about. There's the glory of God, the ultimate glory of Jesus Christ. The miracle is only a means to an end. It's not an end in itself. And I pray that we'll see our need, our problem, also the same way as a means to an end, not just an end in itself. Be glorified in our lives, Lord. Receive praise through this situation, O God. Let lives be swept into the kingdom of God because of it, I pray. We're interested in seeing the problem solved. But Lord, the overriding principle here is that we would see the glory of the Lord manifested and that we would see the sign quality of that miracle that would draw the lives of men and women to Jesus Christ. Let that be the end result of what we're praying about today. In the name of Jesus. I'm finding more power than I ever dreamed. I'm learning to lean on Jesus. Stand with me, we'll sing it together. I'm learning to lean. I'm learning to lean. I'm learning to lean on Jesus, finding more power.
than I ever dreamed. I'm learning to lean on Jesus. I'm going to ask you to read the rest of John chapter 11 and into chapter 12. Just get the sense of how desperate these religious leaders were. They were filled with indignation, the Bible says. They were so angry, they were out of control. They said, we've got to do something. We've got to kill not just Jesus, we've got to kill Lazarus because of his testimony. And then read Acts chapter 5. And after the crucifixion and the resurrection, thousands have been swept into the kingdom of God. Day of Pentecost, 3,000 people. Chapter or so later, 5,000 people swept into the kingdom of God. And the same group of men are meeting again to have a conference. And you can almost sense their chagrin at the fact that what they had planned back in Acts or John chapter 12 didn't work so well. Now there were multitudes of people that believed in the resurrection. These were Sadducees. They didn't believe in the resurrection, but now their very lives and position and place is being threatened because thousands of people now have been swept into faith. Hallelujah. Don't you like the way God works? The devices of the enemy, his strategy, what he tries to work against us. But the word says, no weapon formed against you will prosper. I'm glad for that, that he can take all the strategies of Caiaphas and Annas and they'll go back about three months later shaking their head and say, we have got to have another meeting because what we did didn't work. And if we're going to save our position and save our place, what are we going to do now? Hallelujah. Greater is he that's within us. Hallelujah. Greater is he that's within us. What the enemy means for evil, God has the power to transform it into good.